I think human beings live their lives in a storm, and nations live their lives in a storm. And we're gifted with nostalgia. We remember times that never were and long for them. So we are now in a normal condition of humans. We love those we love, we hate those we hate, we fight, we make up. And human beings are this thing. But it is the most interesting thing that we remember things that we never ever were. We remember a time where this tension of love and hate didn't exist. We remember a time that if we could only get back to, all would be well. And sometimes we imagine that if I have uh, the internet, that will take me home. But there is no going home, we are at home. And we have to be at peace with where we are. And there is no time that has ever been at peace with the chaos that it was surrounded by. And that's the tragedy of the human condition. And it's greatness. Well, there's always a major shift in great powers. Uh, the world in 1945 was defined in a certain way. In 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm. Maastricht was written. The Japanese economic miracle turned out to be <coughs> a miracle, and, and so on. So in 1991, we had a change. We are now having another change. The first, we are discovering that Russia is not a great power. Economically, it lags behind South Korea. Militarily, it has shown itself not to be significant. It is a military. It is a nuclear power. We've also seen that in China, although it has had a magnificent run for 40 years, has now entered a period of economic dysfunction. Its uh, economy, its, uh, its financial system and such has to be restructured. These restructurings aren't easy, and they are never come without political problems. So it's a great power, but how it plays out the game is, mm. is another question. But one thing we've discovered, I think, in this crisis, the enormous power of the United States, which has been forgotten. But the way the Americans were able to use the dollar as a weapon to put the Russians on defensive, the manner in which the United States was able to rally uh, NATO uh, to this common cause. I mean, when we look at the way we thought of the world a while ago, it's different now. No, and that I, I and you're making a very good point. I guess the, that begs the question, how long does that last? Oh, not very long. <laughs> no, I mean, look, also begs the question, so go not, on, go on. When 1945 went to 1999, mm. 1999 went to this point, if this is a transitory point, and every 20, 30, 40 years, we have a transition in the world. And that should not be unexpected. We are a dynamic people. And we will change the way we live, and the system will change, and we will have to align ourselves with it. What was your assessment and, uh, and the potential impact well, of that? I'd like us to think of the 20th century. It was a constantly dangerous century. Whenever some peace broke out, danger lurked. We're in the same position. What we have learned during this is that we're in a dangerous world, that events that we don't anticipate may define who we are, that it's very difficult to handle and very dangerous, that the president spoke of getting rid of uh, Putin. Well, many of us spoke of getting rid of Putin. But this is the US president. Yes, I understand. Out loud on a public platform. All right, well, we spoke of getting rid of Hitler and others. So we may have a discussion. The idea that an American president speaking about getting rid of 
a hostile foreign leader is not particularly novel. Of course, the press is shocked, shocked, I say, to hear such talk. That's not the important thing. The important thing to understand is that the period in which we thought it was no longer dangerous has turned out to be false, mm. that these dangers are there. And when I talk about space, space is going to be a realm of warfare because everything is a realm of warfare. It's also the realm of security. Mm. So what we really have to understand is that the 20th century's end didn't end danger. That's still there. And the really shocking thing was not that Biden said this about Putin. It's the degree to which there's disbelief that this is happening, mm. as if this hasn't happened mm. before. And that disbelief is dangerous because that means nations are not prepared. The war began as a poorly conceived quick regime change operation, where a lot on the Russian military side was ill-conceived and not well-organized. They since made adjustments, but in the military campaign, they pursued lots of different objectives, I think driven by their political goals. In many ways, it was a diffuse effort where a lot of the Russian military campaign was almost competing with itself. Their performance has been unimpressive. Nonetheless, they've made some gains. Where the war settled out now is into three main fronts. One around the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, where Russian forces are largely holding. I don't think there's going to be a battle for Kiev. There, the fight's going to probably seesaw, but it will eventually lead to more consolidated lines. The second one is very similar in the southwest between Kherson and Mykolaiv on the southwestern coast of Ukraine. There, too, the Russian effort ran out of steam. Ukrainian counterattacks have pushed Russian forces back to Kherson. And now it looks like Russian forces there are trying to fix or pin Ukrainian forces to hold them. And the main focus of Russian strategy is on taking the city of Mariupol and on the Donbass, where a large percentage of Ukrainian military is deployed in what is called the Joint Forces Operation. There's a sizable percentage of their ground combat military power. Russian forces are trying to encircle the Ukrainian military in the Donbass. That's the one area where Ukraine's position might be somewhat precarious. In recent weeks, as expected, the Russian military had become exhausted and lost combat effectiveness. They've taken substantial casualties over the last couple of weeks. They've lost quite a bit of equipment. So their offensive potential was exhausted. They had to take a big operational pause. Now we're beginning to see a focus in the Russian military operation. We're also seeing Ukrainian counterattacks trying to incrementally take back some territory, in part because the opportunity is there in terms of momentum but also because I'm sure Ukrainians know that if they don't, Russian forces are likely to dig in. So this week and maybe the next is their best opportunity to try to retake some territory before it becomes much harder. What the future holds, that's somewhat in question, right? They're signaling from the Russian side that they're creating options for themselves to end this war early, see how far they can get in the next couple of weeks, claim that the war was really about the Donbass in the first place, maybe trade back some of the territory they occupied in exchange for political settlement, or alternatively, maybe continue occupying those parts of Ukraine and even partition the country. Right now, it's hard to tell. I think they're trying to create a range of options, and they're trying to salvage something that they can from what so far has been a fairly unimpressive military operation. I mean, there aren't tremendous options. You, you, NATO's already helping Ukraine extensively. 
with almost any kind of military support that makes sense. And one of the challenges people always want to do more, but you have to balance the risk of escalation. You have to balance the risk of whether or not it makes sense to do certain things more. And there are a lot of questions still regarding organizing the military support that I think NATO's already agreed to send Ukraine. But I'm not in charge of NATO policy, or nor am I in charge of advising it, so it's not really the best question for me. I think people that do make recommendations should always check in to find out what the United States and NATO are already doing, and then ask themselves whether or not they have any advice in addition to those propositions and those ideas already being executed. Many actually are not going to have additional anti-tank guided missiles or other capabilities to give Ukraine because they've basically given them most of everything they have to spare. They're actually going to have to go back and make more at this point, right? You still have large shipments from the UK, from the United States, and you now have NATO countries trying to take out of stock late generation Soviet air defenses that they have, offering those to Ukraine as well in exchange for hoping to get some replacements. Long story short, a lot of what is practical to offer Ukraine is now already being offered or in the process of being transferred. Uh, Russian uh, leaders have accused uh, Azerbaijan of essentially violating the ceasefire agreement by entering the Russian peacekeeping mission zone in uh, the part of Nagorno-Karabakh Russian forces are deployed. To me, it looks like a probe by Azerbaijan. They understand that most Russian forces are occupied in Ukraine. The Russians had to pull units away from even bases like those in Armenia and Ossetia and Abkhazia uh, and Tajikistan as well. So they understand that now the Russian military is off in a bad way and they need to pull on as many forces they have deployed elsewhere. So I think they're sensing an opportunity to gain more territory or to achieve some sort of fate accompli in order to move the actual line of control in Nagorno-Karabakh and clearly Russia is pushing back hard on that. I don't know what the situation is right now, to be honest. I'm pretty tied up with the Russia-Ukraine war, and you can only stare at one major war at, at any given time at the end of the day. The good news is that it's quite a substantial distance from main Russian logistical sustainment points to complete a double envelopment of Ukrainian forces in Donbass. And there aren't a lot of Russian forces available, from what I can tell, in the northern part of that advance. All right. The bad news is that they are steadily gaining territory, and it's not clear what the rate of attrition is for Ukrainian forces. We don't really know what the state of Ukrainian forces is. Right? A lot of what we get are glimpses of the equipment losses the Russian military has had, and we have estimates that range widely about the casualties the Russian military has had. But let me ask you, what do you know about the state of Ukrainian forces in this war? The answer is probably, honestly, close to nothing. And we have to be frank about that. So there's a great deal of uncertainty. As an analyst, I'm comfortable with the discomfort of uncertainty. So the honest answer is we don't know. I think people expected the Russian military to blockade Ukrainian cities and to try to isolate sectors early on. They've not really gone after a lot of that critical infrastructure, like railways, for example, until maybe the last week in this war. What they have gone after were supplies like ammunition, fuel, oil, and critical infrastructure. So they have been, you know, to use a bad boxing analogy, steadily working the body that is the sustainment behind Ukraine's military effort. But Ukraine is still able to resupply units, even in frontline cities like Kharkiv, And it is able to get supplies from the West, was able to get weapons from the West. 
Part of the challenge the Russian military has is they actually can't interdict the flow of a lot of these supplies in Western Ukraine. Why? Because first, they don't have a ground presence, and they barely have enough forces for what they're trying to do now, right? Second, in order to interdict them, they would need to use either rotor aviation, combat helicopters, or tactical aviation, fixed wing. But again, that would be very challenging because how are they going to target the flow of supplies and they're going to lose a lot of aircraft to air defense. So they've chosen actually to, to reduce their losses and not attempt to do it in this way. Since they don't have air superiority in those, par in those parts of Ukraine. And even trying to blockade other major cities like Kiev, they've had major issues. They never completed encirclement of Kiev. They never even really got halfway there. So you can see that supplies are actually flowing to most areas and most cities in Ukraine. Right? I think probably the issue Ukraine is going to have is if they choose to sustain counteroffensives, right? That's where they're going to have challenges. The logistical side of the equation is much easier for the defending side. That is not the side trying to project power across terrain. And it's not the side trying to walk further away from the logistics. If Ukrainians intend to sustain counteroffensives, they're not going to have issues. And we have some indicators, at least good circumstantial evidence, that they too have suffered non-insignificant amount of loss in terms of equipment, right? So these could become issues. So we are looking over the course of the next three to six months at roughly four or five million barrels a day of Russian crude falling off the market. That'll be the single biggest loss ever. We are looking at the top spot for global wheat exporters, face, that's Russia, facing interruptions in its ability to ship. And Ukraine, the fifth largest exporter, shipping zero, in fact, becoming a net importer for, from now on. And we're looking at uh, the Russians' ability to export fertilizer, and they're the world's largest fertilizer producer, also impinged. So we are going to not just have a war, we're going to have a simultaneous food shortage by the fourth quarter, an energy shortage at some point in the second quarter. And both of those are going to last years. Just the nature of the destruction and the nature of the Russian infrastructure means that this stuff is going to go offline, and it's not going to come back anytime soon. This is the world we need to prepare for. One with much higher energy prices, you should probably figure 170 is at the low end. And one where we simply don't have enough food product to keep everyone on the planet alive. Right now, the sanctions ban everything except raw commodity exports. So, you know, technically the Russians can legally still export their wheat and their nickel and their fertilizer and their oil and their natural gas. Technically they can, but because ships are shooting things in the Black Sea, insurance companies are no longer covering vessels. So there have been very few loadings from the Russian ports on the Black Sea, such as Tups and Novorossiysk. Novorossiysk used to be their largest in volume oil export point. We also have a lot of ship captains who are refusing to sail into port, and we have a lot of dock workers across the European space that are refusing to unload Russian cargoes. So it's not like it's an airtight boycott or sanction system just yet, but we are seeing interruptions, severe interruptions, and the ability of the Russians to export, and of course the Ukrainians can't export anything right now. One of the things that's weird about the U.S. Department of 
energy is that they calculate energy production a little bit differently from everybody else. They look at what comes out of the refinery because they're like, nobody uses raw crude oil. We use product. Yeah. And it's not mm-hmm. that that's a dumb idea. It's just that nobody else does it that way. So it's a little bit of an apples and oranges comparison. But we export more refined product than our net imports of crude oil. So there's this little clause that was in the 2015 omnibus bill, which included the the energy bill from that year under the Obama administration, which gives the American president the authority to end oil exports by executive decree. So what I'm anticipating here is as it becomes clear just how much disruption we're going to be facing because of the war, and as prices rise through 150 and higher, I expect the Biden administration to use that power and, and block oil exports. Now, some of the refineries in the United States, specifically on the Gulf Coast, will complain loudly because they would prefer to use imported crude that is low quality and relatively high in sulfur, whereas American domestic supply is very light and sweet from the shale fields, and the refineries mm-hmm. were not designed to run with that. So they're, they're looking at some run loss issues. But if you are the president and you are a populist like either Obama or Trump or now Biden, and you have the ability to shield the American population from high global prices, you'll do it. So I can see us having a oil-drenched situation in the United States with an export ban where the functional price of crude doesn't go above 70 But in the rest of the world, they would then be dealing with a loss of Russian and American crude exports at the same time. And that'll easily push prices through 200. There are a lot of things about the Trump administration that I didn't much care for. But the Uh rejiggering of American trade law in order to double down on things like NAFTA and then specific trade deals with countries like Korea and Colombia and Japan, I thought was a solid idea. And those deals are all done. They've all been operationalized. They're, 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 they're doing very well. And the United States was never a very significant international player in terms of economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, only about 15% of our GDP is based on international trade. About 40% of that is NAFTA. And if you remove the energy equation, you're really only talking about 3 or 4% of American GDP in total being linked to the rest of the world at all. Now, that 3 or 4% we will feel because a big part of that is manufactured goods, specifically electronic computing goods from East Asia. That's where the, the pinch is going to be felt most direly. But for everything else, the disruption is probably going to be something we can grow through. Now, growth through means that there will be growing pains. We will have shortages. We're seeing that now. But one of the fun things, fun things, that seems like the wrong phrase, about Trump and COVID specifically is that most American distributors and most American manufacturers have been steadily re-centralizing through supply chains for North American production. Anyone who hasn't, I, I kind of look at you cockeyed because like, have you not been paying attention to what's been going on? There's a lot of moving pieces here. So predicting what the end result is a bit um, premature in my opinion. But if you just want to look at it from a purely demographic and supply chain issue, but, uh, you can kind of, in my opinion, break the inflation in the United States into three general pieces. The okay. smallest one is supply chain. Not that supply chain is not real. It's just the smallest of the three factors. And until such time as we all decide we are on the same page versus COVID, that's going to continue to be an issue because our demand profile keeps whipsawing. So right now, everyone seems to think that we're done. That's great. Let's hope it's true. 
but the Omicron B2 variant is currently exploding within Europe, so there's probably another surge just around the corner. And if that changes our demand profile again, that means that industry has to retool for a tenth time. And every time there's a retooling, it takes a year for the supply chain system to work itself out. That assumes nothing goes wrong with, say, relations with China. The second biggest item is energy. This is the one that I've actually been least concerned about from the American point of view, because we've got domestic production and we have seen steadily increasing production out of the shale fields for both oil and natural gas. And if Biden does slam the door on exports, that's going to go negative. So that's not one I'm overly concerned about in the midterm. The biggest one that I'm concerned about in the short and the medium and the long term is the retirement of the baby boomers. They were our single largest generation ever, which means they've been our single largest worker generation ever. And they are retiring and they will never come back. And on average, they retire this year. So we have known this demographic cliff has been coming since the day they were born. The day has now arrived. So (laughs) we are now looking at sharply higher labor costs in the United States until such time as the labor market fills back up. That's going to be at least 20 years in the future. So we need to get used to the labor market as it exists now, because it will never, well, I wouldn't say never, but for most of us in our professional lives, it's not going to get better. There's not enough time. Uh, Boomers were a large generation with a very high labor participation rate. Generation X, the replacement, is a small generation with a low labor participation rate. The millennials are behind. Either they took an extended adolescence or they lost three to five years of work experience during the financial crisis. So no matter how you look at it, the millennials aren't, they can't plug the gap. And Gen Z, the Zoomers, have already been born. They're a small generation. So we have to wait for the millennials' kids to grow up and enter the workforce. That's 2045. That's the soonest we should expect that aspect of the inflationary pressures to abate. We just need to learn to live with it. When you talk about things like construction, those gaps are never going to be filled because the boomers were the, the, the age bracket that was most likely to have those jobs. And they were assisted by Mexicans who were the most likely immigrants to have those jobs. But Mexican immigration has peaked as well. So Mm -hmm. you're talking about needing to develop a fundamentally different model moving forward.